This is Thinking About OBGYN with your hosts, Antonia Roberts and Howard Harrell. Antonia. Howard. What are we thinking about on today's episode? We have some more obstetric emergencies to talk through that we didn't get to last time. Fun. But yeah, but first, what's the thing we do for no reason? Okay, how about telling women to avoid caffeine in order to decrease breast pain or maybe somehow positively affect their fibrocystic breast changes or pain associated with that? Okay, I don't think I've heard of this one before, but let's talk about it. Well, it's a super common recommendation. Women will come in and they'll complain of breast pain to their healthcare providers. And of course, that's a very common complaint. A ton of people will recommend to women that they may have fibrocystic breast change. It's a source of their usually bilateral breast pain. And that this is either caused by caffeine or made worse by caffeine. So they will recommend caffeine restriction. In fact, I Googled this and one of the first hits is the Mayo Clinic website for fibrocystic breast changes. And I didn't put in caffeine. I just Googled fibrocystic breast changes and this is what came up. And even that website still says that patients might notice improvement if they avoid caffeine. Though, in fairness, it does say that medical studies have been inconclusive. I bet most websites out there that talk about fibrocystic breast changes, breast pain, and avoiding caffeine probably aren't even as honest as the Mayo Clinic is about that evidence being inconclusive. Yeah, no, that's exactly right if you look through the first couple of pages of hits. And one of my biggest pet peeves is when medical advice is given that's not based in science. It doesn't really matter how harmless the advice might seem. Physicians just should not be telling patients to do or not do things that are not based in good science. And most of this sort of advice, things like dietary advice or activity advice or things that you can try for whatever ails you, this is stuff that's just handed down by word of mouth from generation to generation. And very few learners ever go and look to see if there's any science behind that. We just learn a spiel to give patients about whatever bothers them that we heard someone else who was older and presumably smarter and educated do. And then we use that and we tell patients who have the same complaints that. And pretty soon we have dogma set in. So I always say never give a patient health advice that you don't know to be true. Where did this whole caffeine and breast pain thing even come from? Is it like it dehydrates you and makes the cysts more prominent or what is it? I think you're putting more work into it than the people <laughs> who say it do. It seems to have originated with the research of a really well-respected doctor named John P. Minton in the 1970s. Now, Dr. Minton was a surgical oncologist who studied breast cancer and potential breast cancer precursors, meaning either tissue precursors, but also causes. And he died in a car accident in 1990 before much of his work was completed. He was also interested in decreasing the number of unnecessary breast biopsies for benign breast disease. And this, in his mind, meant decreasing how many women presented to him with fibrocystic changes, or back then they used to call it fibrocystic disease. In 1979, he asked 47 women who he had diagnosed with fibrocystic breast disease to stop using caffeine. And of those women, 20 quit using caffeine, so 27 didn't. Of the 20 women who quit, 13 had told him they had resolution of their fibrocystic breast disease per his unblinded exam. So this uncontrolled, unblinded study was the basis of the caffeine-causes fibrocystic breast disease theory. And Dr. Minton's results from this study of essentially 20 women were they were published in Surgery and in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology. A large amount of derivative literature then was soon produced, and it's been dogma since then. I wonder how many of the other 27 women also reported resolution 
or not. Like, I wonder if he was even able to control for placebo or nocebo or whatever. You're thinking way too much again. You're thinking too much like a scientist to appreciate this. I don't know. We do see a lot of literature published all the time that draws one association between some risk factor and some disease, even if there's literally nothing else to imply causation. Yeah, it does happen all the time. And there's a pattern. So note the pattern of rapid adoption of some hypothesis into medical practice before it's been adequately studied. And also note the typical poor quality of studies like this one from the 1970s. This was published in two leading journals. And this study, a study of this type that had essentially 20 patients, would hardly merit a poster presentation today at a local or regional science fair by a high school student. But in 1979 and 1980, it was published in two of its our most preeminent journals and cited by medical textbooks, primary care and OBGYN textbooks and led to fame for its author. But unfortunately, much of the scientific foundation of modern medical practices and modern advice in particular is rooted in similar quality evidence. That's just how things were in the pre-evidence-based medicine era. I wonder why he even picked caffeine of all the other things he could have picked, like any other food or drink, maybe a soda, maybe a type of bra, maybe he could have gone for a type of cigarette. I still don't see why caffeine would be the thing to go after. Yeah, and I don't know the answer to this other than caffeine has been something that some people just are biased against and they look for bad things that it caused. I don't know that was the case for him. He never attempted to propose any physiologic mechanism for it. I will say that when he was a young medical student in the early 1950s, he was living through the era where cigarettes and cancer were being linked And that link being reported amid a lot of controversy and the American public and everybody at that point became suspicious about food and dietary and other things that industries like the smoking industry were selling to people and the chemicals in them. And we were learning about these things being carcinogenic. So most of his lifelong research was framed in that background, and he looked for dietary and other causes of the cancers that he went on to treat. So he may have had good intentions in that sense and not just thought caffeine is another modern thing that we're inserting into foodstuffs that maybe didn't exist 50 years ago and what harms could it be doing. But more studies were done after Mitten's original publication. In 1982, Marshall and colleagues performed a case control study of 323 women who had fibrocystic change and 1,458 women, and they found no difference in their utilization of caffeine. Rosenberg and colleagues in 1985 conducted a similar study of 2,651 women with breast cancer and 1,886 women without breast cancer, and they found no difference in the rates of caffeine consumption. Ernster and colleagues published results of a randomized trial in 1982. Now, they randomized 158 women with benign breast complaints and fibrocystic change to caffeine restriction or to no dietary changes. And they did mammograms before and after this restriction as opposed to the just physical exams that Minton did. And they looked four months later after these restrictions to see if there were any changes. And they found no clinically significant changes. And there was no difference in the mammogram-aided diagnosis of fibrocystic change. In 1984, Haydn and Mulbar performed another prospective study where 72 women were examined monthly over seven months. They logged their symptoms, their caffeine usage, and they looked at their clinical histories, and all that was blinded to the people who did the exams. And the resultant exams showing fibrocystic changes were not correlated at all with the amount of caffeine consumption. The authors pointed out that a disease that, quote, waxes and wanes, as much as fibrocystic change does, is difficult to study without long-term and blinded studies, which was an obvious knock at Minton's original methodology. 
Lubin and colleagues in 85 published a case control study in JAMA of 854 women with histologically diagnosed fibrocystic change or benign breast disease, 755 surgically diagnosed women, and 723 matched controls, and their evidence again showed no correlation between caffeine consumption and benign breast disease. In 1986, Hayden and Fodor published additional data from a five-year retrospective study of 358 women with fibrocystic change and related coffee consumption. They concluded that there's no scientific basis for an association between the consumption of methylxanthines and the development of fibrocystic breast disease. Later in 86, Levinson and Dunn published a literature review of the evidence that existed up to that point and concluded, quote, that physicians need not recommend the avoidance of caffeine in otherwise healthy women who have fibrocystic breast disease. And finally, in 88, Phelps and Phelps looked at data from 44 countries relating to breast cancer deaths and found that if any association existed, caffeine might have a protective effect against death from breast cancer, though in fairness, this was minor and probably not true. So this essentially is the end of the literature and the interest relating to caffeine and fibrocystic breast disease because the issue was put to rest. But as is usually the case with these sorts of stories, the myth didn't die. The scientific evidence didn't matter. Dozens of books have been written since then, which are quick to cite the original article by Minton, but no other papers, of course. And these reports do not view his study critically in any way. And as we said, now there's thousands of websites out there that report that caffeine can cause or make breast pain or fibrocystic change worse. And tens of thousands of doctors and nurse practitioners and PAs will counsel patients about this association every time they complain of breast pain. So there's too much inertia in clinical medicine, I think. And for a field that is supposedly scientific, the majority of interventions and treatments like this that we recommend to people or talk about casually just lack a scientific basis. Doesn't that Mayo Clinic website also talk about giving vitamin E supplements for breast pain or evening primrose oil that they said that was also a good supplement to use? Not just that Mayo Clinic website, but a lot of stuff does, including the little ACOG pamphlet that you can hand patients about fibrocystic change. So yeah, those are two other common things recommended to people. So Robert London in 1976 published a report in which he gave 12 women who had complained of fibrocystic breast pain a vitamin E supplement, and he said that 10 improved over the course of two months. So this is actually the basis of the usage of vitamin E for breast pain. In this case, London himself conducted a randomized trial in 1985 of 128 women, which showed that vitamin E was of no benefit. Nevertheless, vitamin E is still commonly recommended as a treatment for breast pain. And again, I can't emphasize enough, if you've never done this, spend like an hour in your medical library looking in journals of the 70s, Mm -hmm. 60s, 70s, early 80s in the pre-evidence-based medicine era. And this is the kind of stuff that was being published. Can you imagine the Green Journal or the New England Journal of Medicine or JAMA today publishing a paper in which you gave 12 women in an unblinded manner vitamin E and 10 of them said they got better and we're lauding this as something that should change medical practice. It's really extraordinary. But that's my point is we have so many sort of hangovers from that era. There was a 2011 systematic review of treatments for breast pain that found no evidence that that evening primrose oil, pyridoxine, diuretics, progestogens, tibolone, antibiotics, combined oral contraceptives, a low-fat, high-carbohydrate diet, lysiride, or vitamin E. So those are all things that have been routinely studied and recommended. They found that none of those things were shown to reduce the symptoms of breast pain or fibrocystic breast changes. And But despite that, as I said, I don't know if you have them in your office, but ACOG has these little patient education pamphlets. So AP 138, which is about fibrocystic breast changes, still recommends avoiding caffeine, cutting down on salty foods, especially the week before your period, and trying vitamin E for treatment of breast pain. So 
Unfortunately, I think this phenomenon doesn't just happen for relatively benign interventions like these things. Or I think that's part of what why these make it so long is like, what can it hurt for someone to avoid caffeine or take vitamin E? So if it maybe helps one person ever, then do it. But this happens, the same process happens for serious and consequential interventions. And not to say that for me, avoidance of caffeine would be serious. So it could be serious for a particular person. <laughs> too. But, but there's a pattern here. So the first step is there's a potential association discovered and a hypothesis is formed, which is fine. That's what we as scientists do. We notice something and we form a hypothesis. And then the champions of the hypothesis are quick to draw conclusions that are not warranted by the data. And the theory goes viral. So like you shouldn't have drawn a conclusion about vitamin E from a patient study of 12 women. And that author didn't. He went on and did an RCT and found it didn't work, in fairness to him. But then this hypothesis enters into medical practice before it's actually tested. And today you see that like on CNN all the time. New study says that Tylenol causes autism. So how many of your patients have been asking recently about Tylenol and autism? Well, that's because it's all over the news media. And it's at the level of 10 of 12 women got better with vitamin E in terms of its scientific study right now, it's at that level. So eventually the theory does become subjected to more rigorous investigation and is found to be untrue. But by that time, the belief in it is so widespread and it's entered into our lexicon that it becomes true in most people's minds and subsequent evidence is ignored or dismissed. So those who hold the hypothesis to be true just assume that there once was good evidence that supported it even though there almost never was. We talk about this pattern all the time, like, and not to bring it back up again, but tocolytics, same pattern. Okay. I guess the lesson is look stuff up and know the difference between a good study and a bad study. Why don't we get back to our emergencies now? Just we'll agree. Don't tell patients to avoid caffeine or take extra vitamin E for no reason. But Back to the emergencies. We said in the last episode that we should try to cover shoulder dystocia and AFE and eclamptic seizure and maybe cesarean under local. So let's get to it. So why don't we warm up with eclamptic seizure? So immediately someone calls out of a patient room, she's seizing. You start with the basic life support, which is ABCs, airway breathing circulation. And of course, it's easy to panic and go into kind of a blank state during the headlights when something unexpected and acute happens like that, especially if everyone else is already running around like a headless chicken panicking. So that's why a lot of these emergency response mnemonics and basic life support and various obstetric life support training programs are meant to be overly simple. So even when the room's full of nurses or family members yelling, fumbling, crowding around a patient, who's convulsing or maybe foaming at the mouth or something, all the alarms are beeping, there's a huge D-cell. You can just take a deep breath and go into autopilot if you remember the the simplest mnemonic in the world that you also rehearse semi-regularly. So ABCs, make sure her airway isn't blocked. Somebody should actually go to the patient's head, maybe keep it slightly tilted back or even do a jaw thrust, look in there, make sure she hasn't vomited a ton or doesn't have a bunch of secretions. You can put her in a left lateral tilt to help her not choke on something. Also ask for a Yankauer on wall suction if there is secretions to remove. The definitive airway would be intubation, which at least I would defer to someone who does them regularly, like an anesthesiologist or an emergency medicine provider. And there, I think there should always be someone in-house who can intubate as needed. Even if it's an ER doc. Right, right. So... That's the A of ABCs. The airway is clear. 
let's say it's clear, but they haven't been intubated yet. It's just, it's clear. Then breathing, you either give them oxygen with a face mask or maybe even manually bag valve mask them, especially if it looks like their O2 sats are down. And of course they should have a pulse ox on that you should be looking at. And all of this should be happening as you've got someone else drawing up the seizure medications. And in this case, when you presume eclamptic seizure, the treatment of choice is a six gram bolus of magnesium sulfate IV pushed over 15 to 20 minutes, and then a continuous two gram per hour infusion after that. And this mag is more for preventing recurrent seizures rather than stopping the one that's actively recurring. But we would expect that one to stop naturally within a few minutes. And that's a great point. I think what happens in a lot of emergencies, like with hemorrhage that we've talked about before, is people expect it to resolve quicker than it does. Mm -hmm. And so then they keep escalating interventions and treatments because they lack patience. So if her O2 sats are good and you've got airway and breathing going, like be patient. It's okay for a person to have a seizure. Yeah, it doesn't feel okay in the moment, but you've got her airway and breathing controlled So you're just preventing the next seizure. As that treatment is going in with eclampsia, we should also be considering hypertension treatment. And it may be difficult to get an accurate blood pressure measurement in someone who's convulsing. But if they're already known to be hypertensive and you are seeing severely elevated blood pressures during this seizure, then you should still consider it. It may be necessary to help her not have a hemorrhagic stroke during all of this. Yes, and obviously you wouldn't, of course, be giving oral nephetapine for blood pressure if someone's (laughs) having a seizure, but luckily we have IV choices. And if they don't have an IV for the magnesium, you can remember you can give five grams of magnesium in each buttock in a 50% solution for a total of 10 grams as your team works on getting IV access as soon as they can. And you should have that 50% mag solution on your obstetric crash card or immediately available on your OB unit and in your emergency departments for that matter. If the mag bolus doesn't work, meaning they have a second seizure or their first seizure continues for more than five minutes after you've dosed them, then you can give an additional four gram bolus. Now, if that's ineffective, or let's say that mag is contraindicated in the first place because of pulmonary edema, or maybe they're in renal failure, or they have myasthenia gravis, then you should give them the second line medication instead. And this can be immediately a benzodiazepine or another anticonvulsant like phenytoin. Yeah, and this is especially where it's helpful to have designated a team leader and kind of a checklist person from the very beginning to help keep everyone in line and also to help call out the meds and the doses. Because while we can memorize ABCs and even the mag doses, we're maybe less likely to have memorized multiple different second-line drug options with their proper doses and recall them accurately and confidently in the moment. So the benzo dosing would be, here's a common example, is midazolam, two to four milligrams IV every five minutes as needed. The phenytoin would be 10 mg per kg IV slow push, repeated once more in 20 minutes if needed. And those I'm getting even now from looking at my checklist. I've not memorized those. And we do need to have closed loop communication about what's being done, what IV access the patient has or doesn't have, and whether just a quick med review, like, hey, guys, wait, she actually is contraindicated for this med, so don't Your OB crash cart should have these checklists or med lists or whatever on them for hemorrhage doses, for all these things, your massive transfusion protocol, all these sorts of things should be laminated and on your crash cart. And if Mm -hmm. you don't have them, work on developing them. You don't have to recreate these. They're available. If you really need something, email us. 
Yeah, we've got some pretty good examples that we use. And now someone's seizing. We assume it's due to eclampsia if she's pregnant or postpartum, but it's also possible that she's seizing for some other reason. And in that case, the versed, the midazolam, likely will stop it even if the mag doesn't. And just like with postpartum hemorrhage, like we talked about last time, we should be considering the differential diagnosis even as we're treating it. If it's not obviously eclampsia, and if it doesn't resolve with magnesium, then pursuing other causes, working it up for a seizure is very appropriate. So you can start to find out, has she recently received any other drugs that might have caused a seizure, maybe even been given an incorrect dose of something else? Could she have had a head trauma before anyone walked in? Does she have a history of epilepsy, maybe even substance abuse? Does she have a brain tumor (laughs) that could cause it? And of course, you'll have to stabilize her before you get head imaging, but that's something to plan on after securing the acute issues. Yeah. And the rest is really, as you said, just managing the ABCs. Again, call for help, other colleagues, anesthesia, critical care as necessary. Most hospitals have a rapid response team, and that will include people who know all these emergency drugs and can intubate if necessary, things like that. It might include your emergency room doctor or a critical care doctor. So don't be afraid of calling them. In some cases, you might have to emergently deliver the fetus due to fetal distress, but don't even consider delivering for those sort of fetal indications until the mom is stabilized, unless this morphs into a maternal cardiac arrest situation. But an eclamptic seizure means her disease is unstable and delivery is indicated for her benefit, at least, as much as it is for the baby's benefit itself. So in most cases, you'll be able to stabilize a patient and you can proceed with induction of labor and routine obstetric management after the seizure has abated. Yeah, I think we'll get to the C, like the circulation, a little later when we talk about AFE. But let's not talk about that yet. I want to cover cesarean under local. I don't think this is anything that anyone ever wants to do, but it really can be life-saving if, if you're in that kind of a bind. So imagine either you have no anesthesia team and you have to deliver right now, or you don't even have an OR available, or let's even say that you do have anesthesia there, but they're having a lot of trouble getting the airway secure, and this is happening during a uterine rupture or some other catastrophic emergency. And I have had this happen, actually, unfortunately. And just think about any situation where you only have five to 10 minutes at the most to get the baby out before the baby's gone, but you don't have access to an OR or anesthesia in that short amount of time. Yeah. And having no anesthesia may sound ludicrous to some listeners. If they practice in a tertiary or quaternary center or anywhere with in-house anesthesia and OR teams, I'm sure a lot of residents that listen to the podcast don't understand that The vast majority of hospitals in America that deliver babies do not have immediate access to anesthesia Mm -hmm. 24 hours a day or OR teams. And even in some of the larger academic centers, it's very possible that there's times throughout the day or night where anesthesia or the operating room or both are just unavailable due to the other emergencies going on or other cases going on. So your unit should have, again, in its OB crash cart, the kit that you need to do this, and you should just know how to do it. For starters, you can still give the patient IV meds, and that'll be very helpful. Just like with refractory eclamptic seizures that we just talked about, you can use Versed, two to four milligrams, go on the four side, and you can also give her ketamine, 10 to 25 milligrams of IV ketamine. Those two drugs will go a long way to making this much easier. And make sure you have a pulse ox on and that you're giving them supplemental oxygen with a face mask if you're doing these sort of conscious sedation anesthetics. And you can also give 100 micrograms of IV fentanyl at the same time. 
And then if you have half percent lidocaine with epi available, that's probably the most preferred agent, although epinephrine is not essential. And you could use different concentrations of lidocaine. I say that especially because we've had lots of shortages of lidocaine. But draw that up in a large syringe with a 18-gauge needle, a longer needle like a spinal needle, hopefully, and inject along the skin and the rectus sheath where you're going to make your incision. And if you're familiar with how to do trigger point shots or nerve blocks on the anterior abdominal wall, which a lot of us do those routinely for gynecologic reasons, then you can also inject some local anesthetic laterally where you, on either side, where you would do an iliohypogastric nerve block. And that can be very helpful as well. If you don't know how to do that, don't worry. Don't waste your time with it. It's the peritoneum that's really the only thing left that's innervated inside. And that's hard to numb with a needle, obviously. So a lot of people will just take whatever residual lidocaine they have left and pour it over the peritoneum before they enter into the peritoneal cavity. Obviously, if they're awake, they're going to feel this this needle poke and this lidocaine, which burns, and they're probably still going to feel a lot of the incision too. So this is just meant to make it hurt a little bit less, but it's still going to hurt. So you do have to think about the maximum safe dose of lidocaine. Just don't, you can't just go unlimited. And in some cases, you're really limited depending on what your concentration is. And the maximum safe dosing is weight-based. So you have to have an idea of the patient's weight. And that's another thing that you don't want to have to calculate on the fly. You'd rather have had it figured out beforehand and ideally spelled out on a checklist. So when you have lidocaine with epi, the epi constricts those surrounding blood vessels just enough to help the lidocaine not completely spread out. So you can use a higher dose of lidocaine in that case, and more of it stays where you want it. So that is advantageous. If you can get lidocaine with epi, then use that over plain lidocaine. And that maximum safe dose, lidocaine with epi, is 7 milligrams lidocaine per kilo of body weight. So let's say you have 1% lido with epi. That means one milliliter has 10 milligrams of lidocaine, just to really dumb that down. So let's say now you have a 220 pound woman, just picking that because that's about 100 kilos. So 100 kilos, seven mgs per kg, you get to use 700 milligrams of lidocaine. And out of a 1% solution at 10 milligrams per mil, then that would be 70 milliliters. Most of the time it comes in 50 mil vial at the biggest. Now, if you have 2% lido with epi, cut that in half. So 35 mils, or if you have half percent, double it and you can use 140 mils. And now if you have a tiny patient, 110 pounds, 50 kilos, then cut all of that in half. So 35 mils of 1% lido with epi or only 17 and a half mils if it's 2% lido with epi or then up to 70 mils of the half percent lido with epi. Yeah, it sounds like obviously you want the lower concentration, the anesthetic effect will be the same, but you're going to need more of it to get to all these tissues if you can. So you really want to avoid the 2% because it could be easy to overdose them. And of course, this is predicated on the theory that maybe you're injecting it intravascularly and things like that, which you're also trying not to do. In my head, I'm never going to use more than 20 mLs of 2% on anybody. I just know that in my head. Yeah. Yeah. And although you don't want to spend extra time drawing up tens more milliliters that you need and more syringefuls that you need and spend all that extra time injecting. You do have a whole incision length to cover. Plus, if you do end up trying to do an extra little nerve block, you have to do it in a really short amount of time, though. You probably want the freedom to at least use 20 mLs of whatever locally you're going to use, but ideally, you'll want to be able to use more 
so you don't miss a large area inadvertently. And of course, if you only have plain lidocaine available because of the shortages, then it's going to spread more and you have to lower that maximal safe weight-based dose and it's down to four and a half mg per kilo. So it's less ideal because you have to lower your dose and more of it spreads away, but it's better than nothing. One recommendation I've seen on this that maybe will simplify the math a bit is that regardless of the patient's weight, you should never exceed 300 milligrams in a single dose of plain lidocaine given for local anesthesia. And so that would be the equivalent of giving the appropriate weight-based dose of the four and a half mg per kg for a 66 kilogram, 145 pound patient. So it's that is 30 mil- milliliters of 1% plain lidocaine, or if you have half percent, then it's 60 mils. And just think about the size of the vials available. If you don't have this already pre-made as a checklist and you ask for local, you don't want them to bring you the little two milliliter vials. You want to make sure that they bring you a big vial, big syringe, and you can draw it all up in one pull and then push that all once and then get going. So the most practical setup there would be a 50 milliliter or larger syringe. I think we have 60 milliliter syringes at my hospital. And you use that with a large bore needle to drop the full volume of a half percent Lido with Epi out of one of those 50 milliliter vials and then inject it all along that incision. And that way you're not overdosing even if it's a smaller patient and you just can't sit there and do the math of like how much does she weigh and what's her max dose. You know that you can still give that much. Yeah. So in that case, the only reason to worry would be if you only have half percent without Epi and your patient is less than 120 pounds, nine months pregnant. So that would be Unlikely. an unusual situation. And it, and then even then, it would just be a slight dose decrease. Like, say she's 110 pounds, then only inject 45 instead of 50 probably is inconsequential. I'll also say that a good time to practice this, if you've never done that, if you're doing a routine C-section with an epidural or a spinal, and she just has a little bit more pain when you test her than you think, ask for these meds and do this. Yeah. It's a great time to practice and learn how to do those nerve blocks. And for somebody who doesn't have quite the perfect epidural. Yeah, that could still help. And then you're not in a huge panic. So yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. I've never done a cesarean under local, but I have done that probably dozens of times in my life. I've, I've come close, but like I said, I was in a situation where anesthesia was there. They were having some trouble, but then they were able to innovate and and don't feel bad about saving a baby's life with a cesarean under local, plus a little bit of Versed and ketamine. In Africa, cesareans are done just with ketamine many times. So I think people sometimes are maybe too leery to do this, and it could be life-saving. Yeah, it's going to be traumatizing, but you, yeah, you have to prioritize the life. And that's the beauty of the ketamine, too, so that hopefully she doesn't remember it. Yeah. Now let's move on to amniotic fluid embolism. All right. I'll say again that it's very important to consider the differential diagnosis for amniotic fluid embolism. Like all these things, amniotic fluid embolism is actually exceedingly rare. It has a very characteristic presentation, but it's still, we don't perfectly understand how it presents or what it can look like because of how rare it is. It's a hard thing to study, but we think it occurs only in one in about 40,000 or so births. So if you're at a hospital that does 1,500 deliveries a year, you'd expect to see this once every 25 years or so. There's an excellent ACOG clinical expert series on this by Stephen Clark from 
in 2014, and he talks about how he does get overdiagnosed. A lot of just severe hemorrhages are called amniotic fluid embolism when they really don't meet the classical criteria for it. And I can't recommend Dr. Clark highly enough for his expertise on this and a lot of other things, but that's, that is an excellent um, article to read. Now, the management's not going to be much different than any other hemorrhage or cardiac arrest situation because the management is largely supportive, but it still can make a difference to know what it is and how we treat and counsel the patient. So keep other things on your differential diagnosis in mind that may be more likely, much more likely. So for cardiorespiratory collapse, consider a high level of neuraxial anesthesia or pulmonary embolism or a cardiac arrhythmia or just a myocardial infarction or ischemia, drug overdoses, just hypovolemia or anaphylaxis to medicines or other things they've been exposed to. Some anaphylactic reactions happen 30 minutes after exposure, so don't discount that. Sepsis is on the differential. Acidemia, cardiac tamponade, attention pneumothorax, for example. So in the moment, it can be very challenging to tell the difference between, say, anaphylactic shock and amniotic fluid embolism because most of the process is the same, but a patient with anaphylactic shock, we wouldn't expect her to develop DIC. Most cases of DIC and amniotic fluid embolism start before there's been much significant bleeding. It's not a consumptive coagulopathy, but this can also be seen in placental abruptia or placental accreta or things that lead to lots of bleeding, just a C-section where you didn't get hemostasis and she's bleeding in but consider other causes, especially if she's already bleeding first for a different reason, like I said, and then became coagulopathic after she's used up all her clotting factors, but also inherited coagulopathies or being on blood thinners may be a contributing reason or acute fatty liver sometimes presents with hypofibrinogenemia and a DIC picture. Yeah. So there's lots of possible underlying causes or alternatives to AFE, but regardless of that, we're still generally going to do the ABCs no matter what and support the mother. So for AFE, we just have to recognize that this is what might be going on as soon as possible and then be very aggressive with it rather than in waiting and then getting behind on the resuscitation. And there's generally two phases that'll be observed in a true AFE. The first is marked by acute respiratory distress and cardiovascular collapse. And that happens either during labor or within just about 30 minutes after delivery. And that's the part that can look like several other diagnoses like you just listed. Then the second phase is massive hemorrhage with DIC or consumptive coagulopathy. And ultimately, AFE really is a diagnosis of exclusion. And you can't practically make it until after the fact when you've really sat down and reviewed the timeline and looked at the coagulation labs and everything. But it doesn't depend on a tissue diagnosis or a a certain lab test that you send. It's still purely clinical. Yes. And recognizing those two phases, I think, is key to understanding that that's what it was. If someone's been bleeding during or after a delivery or a cesarean, and then they start to go into DIC due to the consumption of their clotting factors, and then they have cardiopulmonary collapse, well, that's not AFE because you notice the phases are reversed. Or if she doesn't bleed at all, and she later develops a rash after acute cardiopulmonary collapse, that's probably anaphylaxis due to something else. And obviously other tests for other causes, as I mentioned, would be necessary. So there's no specific test for an amniotic fluid embolism. Yeah. And for a while, there was a bigger push to rename it to anaphylactoid syndrome of pregnancy, but that never really caught on. And even I'll admit, I think it sounds awkward. And Stephen Clark mentioned it as well in his article that that might be the that is the more accurate way to describe it but that's just not the consensus of what we 
like to say. And there is still debate with what the exact pathophysiology is, like what's the inciting event. And we really have no idea who is going to get it and what their risk factors were that made them get it. But it's pretty well established that there is a abnormal immune response involved in this syndrome, likely to exposure to something normal that everyone giving birth is exposed to. But then in these rare patients, they have an abnormal response to it. And there's been people out there that have looked at using some kind of, I'd say, immune modulators as specific treatments for AFE, but none of them have become standard of care yet. I think just because it's so rare that it's hard to study it and Well, here I have the historic tidbit for the episode. So the first modern description of what we're calling amniotic fluid embolism was by a Scottish pathologist called Harold Atwood. He later moved to Australia, but at the time he was in Dundee. He became famous for his description and his subsequent research on this issue. He had investigated the death of a woman who died of obstetric shock. She was 43 years old and was having her fourth child many years after her third. She had no particular problems with her prenatal core. She was admitted in labor on August 31st, 1954, had normal blood pressure, no other issues. She had a spontaneous rupture of membranes at 4.45 in the morning on September 1st, and the fluid was meconium stained. And just after that, she felt nauseous, and then she lost consciousness, and she began to seize, and then she became cyanotic and short of breath, and she died at about 5 a.m. Now, sadly, the fetus died as well. So Dr. Atwood did an autopsy on this lady about six hours later, and gross examination of the organs and the body, he couldn't find any cause of death. But when he looked at microscopic sections of the lobes of the lung, he found them full of foreign material in the pulmonary arteries and the arterioles and the alveolar capillaries. And that foreign material was mucin and fat and lanugo hairs and epithelial squamous cells and bile. And these are all things that you would find in amniotic fluid. And he went on to do many years worth of research. And he also developed experiments in animals and tried to make animal models to try to understand what was happening. But this is the origin of the amniotic fluid embolism diagnosis. That's very interesting. Wasn't he also one of the first ones to suggest that this still was an anaphylactoid reaction rather than a blockage of the vessels by this material? He did suggest in the original paper that there was an immune response related to it. But I think people just heard about it and from the name of it, the embolism name, they assumed a blockage pathology. I'm not really sure where the blockage pathology started. Yeah, definitely. It seems like over time, a lot of other authors came to believe that it was just a straight blockage, just like a thromboembolism that caused the pulmonary circulation to collapse. But by the mid-90s, Dr. Stephen Clark and one of his colleagues, Michael Benson, largely brought us back to the idea that this was anaphylactoid and related to mast cell degranulation and tryptase activity, which they could detect by testing for it. But subsequent studies found that testing for tryptase was not very sensitive for the amniotic fluid embolism process. And not all cases show any evidence of mast cell degranulation, which might be due to them being incorrectly diagnosed as AFE, or just that they were AFEs, but we still don't have a complete picture of what it is. And none of that means that the term anaphylactoid syndrome of pregnancy would be incorrect, because anaphylactoid refers specifically to non-immune-mediated degranulation of mast cells that does not involve IgE. And no studies today are in conflict with that idea. Yeah, and I think all of the thought leaders about this believe that anaphylactoid 
lactoid syndrome or pregnancy is the more accurate term, but as you said, it's just never really got on. But we'll go with the consensus of calling it the historical and easily uttered AFE, I guess. So how do we manage this? The patient will initially show acute hypotension and or cardiac arrest, and they'll, with that, have acute hypoxia. They'll have severe hemorrhage pretty soon thereafter, and eventually a coagulopathy without other reasons to explain it. And all these things will typically occur during labor or within 30 minutes or so of a delivery event, which could include actually an earlier trimester termination. And obviously, you'll be treating those acute presenting signs with appropriate supportive care, including supplemental oxygen or intubation, more than likely, gaining second large bore IV, placing the patient in a left tilt if she's still pregnant to try to maximize the maternal cardiac return, treating the hypotension with fluids and vasopressors and probably massive transfusions with a goal of maintaining the mean arterial pressure above 65 millimeters of mercury, potentially doing an emergent operative delivery or perimortem cesarean to try to get the uterus out of the way of her cardiac return and even to facilitate chest compressions as necessary, and getting, of course, your critical care and cardiology colleagues involved as quickly as possible who may need to treat potential cardiogenic shock. Now with labs, an ABG will be consistent with hypoxia with decreased pH and PO2 levels and increased base excess and PCO2 levels. Your initial CBC will probably just be normal. The PT time will probably be prolonged as clotting factors are being used up and your fibrinogen level will eventually, if not initially, be low as soon as she's entered into DIC. And of course you want to blood type and cross her and initiate your master transfusion protocol. EKG, chest x-ray, all those things are helpful. Chest x-ray will probably be non specific though, with some increased areas of opacity that look a lot like acute pulmonary edema, it may not be very helpful to you in the moment. And as you mentioned, there could be increased serum tryptase if you were to check that, or urinary histamine concentrations also have been looked at, but they're not very specific. And they typically have decreased complement levels. So those labs might be helpful eventually to help you confirm that this was an anaphylactoid process, but they don't help you with the acute management. But the goal initially is largely supportive and trying to maintain her vital signs and oxygenation levels. So this means aggressive fluid resuscitation and transfusion. Obviously, fluids are first line for shock in most cases. But if you're already in DIC and you have hypoxia, be careful about potentially overload of fluid. So after a liter or two of crystalloids, if you're not getting better, giving her six or seven more liters of crystalloids is not going to accomplish anything. You're just going to cause pulmonary edema. It's better to replace the volume with blood products that she's losing and use vasopressors to treat the shock. We need to correct the coagulopathy with clotting factors, including fresh frozen plasma, platelets, and cryoprecipitate. Fresh frozen plasma should be given until the PT is corrected, and cryoprecipitate should be given until the fibrinogen is above 100. And by the way, a unit, a modern unit of cryo will raise your fibrinogen level by about 10. Now, epinephrine is the presser of choice due to its usefulness in other anaphylactoid reactions, and of course, its alpha-adrenergic vasoconstrictor effects. So we can use also phenylephrine, and ionotropic support with dopamine and noradrenaline can be helpful. You can also consider giving hydrocortisone because it is, after all, an anaphylactoid reaction. There are other protocols described, including something called the AOK protocol, which is atropine, Zofran, and Toradol. Zofran's ondansetron and Toradol's ketorolac, so they got AOK out of that. But since it's hard to prove benefit from these, there aren't really any special protocols that the experts endorse, and particularly in that clinical expert series article I mentioned. So if your facility locally decides to adopt something that's specific to amniotic fluid embolism, make sure that you're familiar with the protocol, but don't let that detract from just really just basic life support and critical care. 
Yeah. And obviously, most of that vasopressor administration and probably even the transfusion is going to be provided by anesthesiology or your other critical care specialists there while you manage the actual hemorrhage and delivery and stuff. Many of these patients will be candidates for aggressive advanced life support, including maybe even cardiopulmonary bypass. But due to the nature of the conceptive coagulopathy that often follows, it's difficult to perform ECMO until that's been resolved because the pulmonary veins often are clotted off during DIC. The good news is this is rare enough that hopefully, fingers crossed, you don't actually see it in your career. But again, the bad news is it is unpredictable. But if you apply all of these same basic approaches, even to the other more common OB hemorrhage and other emergencies, even other cardiac collapse situations, you can still prepare yourself for this as well in case you do have that unlucky patient someday that gets an AFE. And if you treat it proactively and aggressively, you can avoid some other hemorrhage turning into a significant decompensation that, you know, someone else might be tempted to misdiagnose as an AFE. Yeah, I think if you're comfortable with the conversation we just had, you're going to be able to handle the most critical care kind of things that ever happened to a pregnant woman. So if you're not, work on being comfortable with AFE management and you've got the other stuff. But that's, it's the, it's probably the most complex problem that we have. And if you can manage it, not that you can save everybody's life, but if you understand the management, you'll be okay in any critical care situation that involves the maternal circulation, at least. Well, let's still cover shoulder dystocia. We'll try to be quick. We have talked about it previously way back in season one, episode number five, but that was really long ago. We spent basically the whole episode discussing shoulder dystocia in detail. So if anyone wants a recap of that, then I'd say go back and listen to that episode. But here, why don't we just briefly go through an emergency protocol for shoulder dystocia? Yeah, that was the Kaiser Wilhelm episode. So yeah, we don't need to go into too much detail. We don't have that much time. There are a lot of eponyms, though, when we talk about shoulder dystocia. And you did ask me to find some eponyms named after women, so I did. All right. What are they? Well, the APGAR score, of course, is named after a female anesthesiologist named Virginia APGAR. Okay. The White's classification for diabetes and pregnancy are named after a female endocrinologist named Priscilla White. Okay. Klumke's palsy is actually named after an American-born, though she practiced in France, doctor named Augusta Klumke. And Call Exner bodies, which if you remember are the little findings characteristic of granulosa cells, granulosa cell tumors of the ovary, are named at least the first half for Emma Louise Call, who was one of the first female physicians, period, in the United States. So that's like three and a half eponyms. Is that all you could find? There'll there'll be more. I have secured a special guest for our upcoming eponyms episode later on, and I'm sure he'll have at least, I don't want to put the pressure on him, but a couple more. Okay. Well, that's exciting to hear. I'm glad you think so. Okay. Back to the male eponyms for the minute, because all of these are going to be straight male eponyms. Let's talk about the McRoberts maneuver, or should we just shorten that to the Roberts maneuver? And you could take that one for the women. fine by me. I use it a lot. All right. (laughs) The Roberts maneuver. All right. Well, okay. So that's probably one of the very first maneuvers we would do for a shoulder dystocia. And as with a lot of other emergencies, particularly very time-sensitive emergencies, one of the first things to do when you've identified a shoulder dystocia is note what time it is and call for help. Then flatten the back of the bed so that she's totally supine. Maybe also lower the bed to help your assistants that might be doing various maneuvers too, and place her in the McRoberts position, or Roberts as we're 
saying right now. So knees all the way up towards your ears. This is going to relieve about half of all dystocias just by itself. And at the same time, you can direct the nurse to apply suprapubic pressure on the posterior aspect of the anterior fetal shoulder to help push that baby's shoulder inwards towards its chest. And now over 90% of shoulder dystocias will be resolved. But if those two things don't work, then this is where it tends to have some variation in what various obstetricians will do next and in what order. So I think what you might do is a little different than what I would do, perhaps because our hands are different sizes and we just have different success rates with different maneuvers. Well, yeah. So I like to combine the Rubin maneuver or what is really the Rubin 2 with the suprapubic pressure. The suprapubic pressure was Rubin 1. We forget that. We talked about that on the other episode a lot. So while the nurse is applying suprapubic pressure, I'll at the same time use my fingers internally to try to move that shoulder and make it rotate inward toward the fetal chest. And if this doesn't work, then I'll typically check and see if the posterior shoulder is beyond the sacral promontory. And if it is, I'll try to do a delivery of the posterior arm. And if it isn't, then I'll try to do a Woods corkscrew maneuver. I think the difference here is that some people will skip straight to delivery of the posterior arm or DOPA instead of trying the internal Rubin maneuver. And I think that's okay, especially if you have smaller hands that you can get in there easily. I do not. I also think it's important to realize that the Woods corkscrew maneuver is primarily useful or beneficial where other maneuvers may not be in the situation where the posterior shoulder is still above the promontory, the so-called double dystocia. I still might try it if I've not been able to deliver the posterior arm first, but I'm almost always going to be successful with DOPA. And I think that's what most people favor as an initial step after the superpubic pressure and the McRoberts maneuver. I used to go to the Rubin first and then do the posterior arm delivery, but I would find in most cases I couldn't get success with the Rubin and then I could with the posterior arm. And then I just started going straight to that and it, it would still work. So it's I didn't have to do two things. I just had to do the one thing. And I, I'm not sure if it's because the Rubin requires more force than the posterior arm delivery for me. I don't know. But I should also specify that it's rarely that I even deliver the full entire arm out because usually the baby's hand isn't right up by their face where I can just grab it and pull it out. If that's the case, it's usually not even a dystocia. In a dystocia, it's usually that I'm able to get around the posterior arm's armpit and then just pull, shrug it up to the baby's ear. And now here's another eponym for you. The menticoglu maneuver is where you hook your fingers around the baby's posterior shoulder and armpit and then just pull outwards until that shoulder is out. And then you do the rest of the delivery because you have room to get the anterior shoulder and the rest of the body. Then there's one that's called the shoulder shrug maneuver. And that's where you would do the menticoglu. But then once you get the posterior shoulder out, then you rotate the baby 180 So that brings that posterior shoulder around to now being the anterior, and then you do the rest of the delivery that way. So I think all these little variations of this technique can split hairs. I think they're all kind of the same idea as using a red rubber catheter or something else to sneak under the baby's armpit for axillary traction if you can't get your fingers to fit there. So they're all the same idea with slight variations of how to do it. And again, if you want to hear us talk in detail about how to do each of these maneuvers, then listen to that episode, season one, number five. But if we get to a point where we've done 
Roberts. We've done suprapubic. We've done internal Rubin. We've tried to deliver the posterior arm. We've tried to access the posterior axilla. We've tried to do a Woods corkscrew, and none of these things seem to be working. Then it is totally valid to try to repeat all of them. Just do the same thing you just did, but use a little more force than you did the first time. Because you might have wiggled even a millimeter doing something, and then that's what you need to get success with a repeat attempt. Yeah, tons of eponyms, huh? But I think if you go through and repeat these maneuvers after you've done them the first time without excessive force, and hopefully at that point one of them works, you're just praying that one of them will work, frankly. And even if that results in a broken bone or maybe a stretched nerve or maybe even a torn nerve, that's okay. Like you got the baby out alive and without brain damage. So a little bit more force with these maneuvers the second time around will often be successful and usually won't result in any injuries. All this should take a span of seconds, not minutes, to go through these maneuvers, even go through them twice, hopefully in around a minute before you need to resort to really desperate and more definitive measures. Yeah, if you've gone through everything twice, though, you shouldn't try to go through a third, fourth, fifth time. If you've gone through them twice and that doesn't work, then we really need to get a lot more extreme and consider a Zavanelli maneuver or an abdominal rescue. Yeah, and if the fetus is still alive, then a Zavanelli maneuver is your best option. Remember, time is critical. So hopefully you've decided to proceed down that pathway within a couple of minutes or less since the head first was delivered, and you perform the maneuver to replace the fetal head back inside. Have your team give a uterine relaxant, usually nitroglycerin, 100 to 200 micrograms, or terbutaline, 250 micrograms. Reverse the cardinal movements of labor as you cut up the entire head with your hand and push it back upwards, just like with a vaginal hand for cesarean of a deeply impacted fetal head we talked about last episode. If you can get the fetal head back inside, then that buys you a few more minutes of time. Whereas if you can't, then every minute is precious in terms of preserving the neurologic integrity of the child and its life. In the best cases, you might even see a normal fetal heart rate tracing on the monitor after you've successfully restituted the head. So just in terms of neurologic outcomes, there's a big difference between a successful cephalic replacement and one where you're not able to replace the head. And in practical terms, if you can't replace the head, still rush to the OR for an abdominal rescue or what some people call O'Shaughnessy's maneuver. But just know that you probably are not going to have an intact or maybe even a living child. So you'd really like to have that head replaced within about two or three minutes of all of this starting. That means you need to go through all these protocols very rapidly and make a decisive decision very quickly. It has happened that people have not been able to get the restitution of the head completed, but they got to the operating room and their partner's opening the abdomen and they do this so-called abdominal rescue where the operator through the abdomen pushes the baby down through and still have a successful outcome. But you understand that that's a one in a million occurrence. And I suppose if in the worst case scenario, the baby has died, then at that point, you could do an intentional destruction of their clavicle or some other procedure to help them actually fit out vaginally. But typically, we don't intentionally fracture their clavicles or what's called a clidotomy if they're still alive. Yeah, clavicles and other bones can get incidentally broken, but no honest person's doing this intentionally. What about symphysiotomy. We talked about that a couple of episodes ago, and I don't think that realistically, if you have access to an operating suite, that you would ever consider doing this. I think you might lose your medical license in the United States if you did that. Yeah, no no reason to do that if you can do a cesarean or abdominal rescue. So 
I had asked you to give me some female eponyms, and then we talked about shoulder dystocia, but you did not even mention Gaskin's maneuver, and we know she's a female. Well, I didn't. I will say that many times the Gaskin's maneuver is mentioned as the only, I've heard this, the only obstetric maneuver named after a woman. I'm not positive if that's true or not, but Gaskin's maneuver is essentially McRoberts maneuver, but upside down. So if a patient happens to be in all fours position while she's pushing, then Gaskin's maneuver will help to simulate basically the same thing that's happening with McRoberts maneuver. So again, we talked about this in the other episode in more detail, but if a patient's on her back when the shoulder dystocia occurs, I think it would be frankly malpractice to spend the time needed to roll her over on all fours and attempt this maneuver. And then if it fails, have to roll her back over to attempt the other maneuvers. That maneuvering back and forth will waste about a minute of time and it doesn't offer any advantage over McRoberts maneuver in terms of its success. So I think people are misled when Gaskin's maneuver is included on the list of things to do for shoulder dystocia because it really only has a narrow application. And that's if the patient happens to be on all fours while pushing and you then encounter a shoulder dystocia, then yeah, give it a try as your first maneuver. But if it doesn't work, you're going to need to quickly get her back on her back so you can do these other maneuvers. I also say that a lot of people just aren't used to delivering patients when the mother is on all fours and a lot of dystocias that they encounter are actually just due to a lack of knowledge about how the mechanisms of fetal expulsion occur upside down from what we're used to when everything is turned the other way. But yes, I think that Gaskin's maneuver perhaps deserves just a footnote for shoulder dystocia when it's encountered in the situation where the mother is already pushing on all fours and otherwise it really is not part of our algorithm. Are you sure you're not just biased? against her. Well, this will be a great conversation point for our upcoming episode on eponyms. I do have some reservations about using an eponym name for a woman who in her midwifery book says that she doesn't recommend Rogam to her patients because she doesn't believe that the science is clear about that point, quote unquote. Rogam is one of the most life-saving interventions that we have in obstetrics. And so I do have a problem with memorializing a person who would say something so harmful to pregnant women. And she's still alive and I suppose is welcome to criticize me for criticizing her. But we try to talk about science-based principles on this podcast. And even in her paper describing the way the maneuver would work in her mind, she claims that it changes the size and shape of the pelvis, which it absolutely does not do. So this just comes from the fringe of the profession, I think. And that being said, I've used it when I've encountered difficulty with delivery in a woman on, who's pushing on all fours. I call it the Gaskins maneuver. But when we discuss discuss eponyms in the upcoming episode, we can talk about how we should deal with eponyms whose namesakes have troubled or controversial pasts. The Sims retractor, for example, is now being called the Lucy in many institutions. And a lot of other eponyms have just been canceled outright because of the very complicated history of their namesakes. But we'll discuss that and much more when we talk about eponyms and what the right thing perhaps to do is in situations like that. As far as the Gaskins maneuver, she says that she learned it from a woman from Belize who herself learned it from a lady or observing deliveries in Guatemala. So maybe we could call it the Guatemala maneuver. Maybe, but now I'm a little concerned about the hate mail you're probably going to get. Well, yeah. We'll just wait until the eponyms episode and our special guest. But just to be clear, page 230 of Spiritual Midwifery, the fourth edition says, quote, I do not favor the use of prenatal rogam in, in pregnant RH positive mothers, as I don't think the scientific evidence indicating its use is persuasive, end quote. And that's one of many explicitly anti-scientific statements in a book that's been lauded as one of the most important books about giving birth in the 20th century. I agree. That's unconscionable because Rogam has saved the lives of countless children, really. Yeah, it's one of the greatest gifts to pregnant women ever discovered. And it doesn't stop with Rogam. She advocates 
for example, against the Gardasil vaccine, which has virtually eliminated cervical cancer in Australia, for example. And she's largely responsible for a lot of the fear-mongering around the use of a lot of medications we use, like mesoprostol and obstetrics, and many other safe and effective interventions. Things like this are in her book, Ina May's Guide to Childbirth, which continues to be a very popular seller and is endorsed by people like Christiane Northrup, who most recently became very famous for leading the charge against the COVID vaccine. In that book, she argues that amniotic fluid embolism, for example, is caused by the use of oxytocin or Cytotec or Cervidil, and she attacks personally Stephen Clark, who we mentioned several times in this episode regarding his work on amniotic fluid embolism, and she attacks him as someone who has participated in a cover-up of the so-called science that links uterotonic drugs as the cause of amniotic fluid embolism. And this fact in her conspiracy theory and what she calls an educated hunch, quote-unquote, is the reason why she recommends against patients having so-called chemical inductions of labor with oxytocin. So yeah, send the hate mails if you want, but I'll take the side of Stephen Clark on this one and probably pretty much anything else any day of the week. Okay, well, so will I. Let's wrap it up here before we go on all day with this stuff. The Thinking About OBGYN website will have links to what we discussed, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with some new good stuff. Thanks for listening. Find us online at thinkingaboutobgyn.com. Be sure to subscribe. Look for new episodes every two weeks.